Fistic podcast. Uh, today, it's Chris Dong. I'll be talking to uh, Darren Ray, the CEO of Fistep. Um, we'll be talking about the New York State uh, Regulator of Financial Services, which recently put forward a proposal on the 28th of December, actually, uh, last year, outlining the cybersecurity requirements for financial services companies uh, op- no, regulated in the state of New York. Um, Darren, what does the recent proposal put forward mean for financial services companies that are regulated in the state of New York? It's actually quite a big change, Chris. There are some uh, limitations and some uh, variations and some exceptions where organisations can actually opt out. But for the majority of the organisations that are uh, operating financial services and regulated in the state of New York, there's a number of changes. Now, one of the biggest ones, I think, um, is the formalization of data privacy and data protection. This moves a lot closer to some of the requirements um, that we see in the European uh, regulation, GDPR. In fact, there's a lot of um, uh, crossover, although the the rights of the individual aren't carried forward. But there's a lot of recognition here of uh, common best practice and the best practice that's been operated in Europe um, that's actually starting to work its way into the regulatory requirement. And some of the ones that I'll just uh, that I'll just pull out here that I uh, uh, that I thought um, uh, were interesting. Um, it's things like uh, capturing information such as uh, driver's license numbers and uh, non-driver identification card information and credit card and debit card information and um, you know social security numbers. All of this information is now regarded as non-public information, um, which in the GDPR terms, we'd uh, consider to be personal information. Really interesting thing, though, um, is that uh, like uh, GDPR, uh, we see NYDFS also uh, drawing uh, drawing out the, bio- the need to keep biometric records as um, non-public information as well. That's an interesting development and not one that we've seen or that I've um, seen in any of the US uh, regulation uh, before. Mm. Also extends, uh, you know, HIPAA and uh, other um, data privacy in the U.S. Also mentions things like, um, or is specific to medical information. And again, medical information is uh, is referenced here. So medical insurers who are regulated in the state of New York who perhaps aren't covered by HIPAA or, or haven't previously needed to. HIPAA. So can we for people who don't know what that? Um, HIPAA is the medical um, data protection, uh, right. uh, the health. Um, information privacy protection act i think is uh, what it stands for right, we'll just uh, yeah thanks very much Chris. it's very kind of you on a on a tuesday morning for you to be uh, uh torturing me like that um but yeah it's predominantly um aimed at um, um uh, health and medical information though. so this um, so this proposal are we are we saying that it's a, it's a lot more prescriptive than maybe anything that's gone before or compared to the likes of the uh, NIST or, or regulation the regulations in Europe, so yeah, absolutely. I think um, certainly from the U.S. perspective, I think it is more prescriptive. It's not as prescriptive as some of the uh, information security thing, uh, standards, such as uh, PCI, which is a payment card industry requirements. But it is still prescriptive without falling um, falling into the trap of going too far and being too prescriptive, so that people can. Um, you know, really do exactly what it says on the tin and no more or no less. Mm. Um, it's an important difference. I okay. I'm interested to know, in terms of an organisation, you mentioned the, 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 the boundaries almost between the private and public sort of information. I mean, mm. that must be quite a blurred area, must it not? So into, how, how do you set what the guidelines are and what the... No, how those two overlap and what the divide is. Is that possible to do that? Well, yeah, actually it is. I mean, you do data categorization um, so that you understand um, what is your 
um, what is your public and non-public information. Um, but also the MIDFS um, cybersecurity requirements uh, are actually quite prescriptive around what they're expecting. Doesn't mean that they're covering everything, but they are quite prescriptive. Um, so you know some of the ones I uh, mentioned earlier on, but it also uh, talks about um, access uh, codes or passwords that would permit access to financial information, for example. So they're the kinds of things that people expect to be encrypted, um, but haven't always been. Mm. Um, so, and you know, we've seen a number of breaches, not necessarily of financial organisations, but a number of breaches of organisations such as Yahoo, um, who haven't had password information um, encrypted to the level that um, that uh, would be expected. Or yeah. was expected by the um, by their users. Does this um, does this proposal um, does this touch on of sort of sanctions as a result of breaches? Or is there anything like that involved at this stage, or is it, is it too early yet to know about that sort of thing? No, there's not details of um, sanctions, but the usual um, um, way for the US regulators to do fines, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, fines yeah. fines is the usual mechanism, um, and they're typically. Um, you know, scaled on the nature of the uh, of the breach, the number of people um, uh, affected, and things like that. But there's not um, this particular um, piece hasn't got as far as um, as far as that. Right. So if you if you're in Europe though, you're thinking this maybe this is obviously because you know this is the US state level equivalent of say the UK's FCA, but organisations that have a presence, I'm talking to European or Asian organisations or whatever, that are regulated in New York have to think very carefully about this. Yeah, absolutely, they do. But there's nothing, um, there's nothing really here that isn't considered to be best practice. I mean, there's some things that are uh, specific to the um, the industry sector that it's um, that it's regulating. But there's nothing here that's not considered to be a best practice, mm -hmm. and nothing that um, you know the the cybersecurity or information security. Uh, community wouldn't recommend that organisations be doing um, already. Some of them might want it to go a little bit further and perhaps even be a little bit more prescriptive. But actually, this is um, you know this is a significant step up from what we've seen in the past. Okay. So to get your head around this, um, or to, to help your, your organisation to comply, um, would you recommend sort of a one-off project? For example, or would there be a different approach that you take? Well, actually, that's um, that's a really good um, question, Chris, or a really good point because um, historically, organisations have tried to view information security and cyber security as a one-off product uh, project, um, you know, something that's one and done. Right. Um, that's really not something that's uh, appropriate for cyber security okay. or information security, because. The requirements change. Hackers get smarter. Um, you know, they find new vulnerabilities. They find new way of new ways of breaking into things. Mm -hmm. And if organisations aren't prepared for that um, and aren't evolving their uh, their protection, um, then uh, they're obviously going to become un unprotected. In fact, as part of the uh, MYDFS requirements, um, they actually require you to run cybersecurity as a program, um, uh, which is you know again, it's a it's a really good. Um, uh, change and development. So they'll ask you to say conduct a risk a risk assessment as well, mm. won't they? So what would be involved in something like that? Well, there's there's a, a number of aspects to that. Um, the risk assessment that they'll um, that they'll ask you to perform first of all is actually understanding your um, your both your appetite for risk and your risk profile. So um, what are the um, what are the risks that you face? So. You know, listeners to the podcast and readers of the blog will remember that we've gone through the all the stages yeah. of NIST. So, 
identify, identifying what you want to protect and what you want to protect it against. That's very much that initial stage of the uh, of the risk assessment. So, what risks are you facing? Um, how exposed are you? Not falling into the trap of saying, "Oh, we're only a small firm, therefore we're we're going to be safe." Um, but what are the risks that you're facing? Okay. But understanding your appetite for risk as well. If you're running, say, cyber, so if you're running cybersecurity as a program, um, who, who owns this? You know, who, who is the owner of this? Is this is, is this the IT department or? You know, it, it can be the it can be the IT department. In some organisations, it will be. But um, you know, typically, what we suggest is that um, the responsibility sits with the CISO, and that's another requirement within the um, uh, the proposal that um, organisations need to have um, a CISO. Um, a CISO, a Chief yeah. Information Security Officer, who's actually responsible for the cybersecurity program and a number of other things, you know, such as um, you know, reporting breaches and managing um, incidents and things like that should they occur. Um, but it's actually a, a mandated part of the. So I think they've, they've uh, the been program. described as a qualified individual who oversees data protection. Is that that's, that's right? Isn't yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah, with data protection and cybersecurity um, uh, as well. So they'll be responsible for um, all the aspects of. Uh, providing or ensuring the organisation is is prote is protected, they're also responsible for providing a report back to the board on at least an annual basis um, to detail um, the measures that have been taken during the course of the you know between the last reporting period, and that includes details of any major breaches as well. And obviously, major breaches should be reported to the board you know uh, after they've occurred or as they occur, rather than being uh, wrapped up in a in an end of year report. Um, but the interesting aspect that there is there is an in, uh, an annual reporting requirement um, right. for CISOs to the board. Okay, um, so you know, with all this information, all this data um, that's contained in lots of organisations, their processes, uh, I imagine there's a need for a, a pretty strong um, audit trail. Uh, would that be correct? Would that be a correct assessment? Yeah, absolutely, there is, um, and it's not just audit in terms of um, documenting and demonstrating. Um, that you've got um, the right policies in place and things like that. Um, it's actually having applications um, keep their audit logs so that you can actually see if someone's tried to break in or hack the system or if someone changed the, the permissions um, you know, for a, a um, you know, for an area of the system that's uh, only supposed to be locked down to administrators or uh, is kept uh, private between a, a small group. Um, where that kind of access management is uh, has been breached, uh, for example, you need to know about that, and that will be kept in in the logs. Mm. Um, that means that uh, post breach or post incident uh, forensic activity can actually understand what happened, and that's a very important aspect to being able to improve your um, information security. Well, you mentioned access management, so I, I guess that's where the the point about um, there's a point about access controls and identity management that flows very much into business continuity. I imagine the two things probably go hand in hand, do they not? Um, in some respects, they do. I mean, certainly around, um, you know, well, certainly there's a, a number of policies and procedures that you've got to have in place that um, uh, where they, uh, certainly where they join together. So um, there's a list, and this is another area where, um, you know, the the requirements are quite specific about the minimum that they're expecting to see. But some of the key um, policies and procedures that I drew out from uh, um 
the requirement, for example, are information security. Uh, that's an obvious one. Um, you know, mm. cyber security is a subset of information security. Remember, um, data, data governance and, um, and classification. Again, going back to understanding what's um, private data and non-private data. Yeah, um, you know, yeah. um, uh, and go through that. And uh, to your point, you know, the business continuity and disaster recovery uh, planning and resources. So understanding. Um, and setting out policies um, to contain that information. Um, uh, customer data privacy, um, so having a policy about what uh, customer data you're collecting, how you're retaining it, how long you're retaining it, how you're processing it, those kind of things are very important. What about employee data privacy? I mean, that must be a pretty important point. Um, it's not raised as part of um, MYDFS, but certainly that information under GDPR um, you know, right, would okay. be covered under the um, under the European requirement. But um, under MYDFS, really what they're talking about here is more customer data as opposed okay. to employee data. But having done the exercise for your customers, um, I guess you will start to see um, organizations wanting to treat their employees in the same way because these organizations want to attract good people they want to attract the right people and they want to retain them having um, you know having found them um, there's mm. nothing worse than actually getting good people on, on board and then having um, you know identity theft uh, striking them because uh, you haven't encrypted their their personal information or their banking banking yeah. information for example yeah yeah and employees is another point I wanted to touch on because no, they're they're going to be the ones who are overseeing a lot of these, uh, the, the, well, the, the processes that go along with this, with this proposal. So, um, in terms of you know their awareness and training, and how how do you go about making them aware of the issues that are involved with data protection? It really go comes back to the um, you know repeating some of the stuff that we've talked about, and that, you know uh, that's the nature of. Um, um, you know some of the frameworks and the things that we've spoken about before, but it's really about having an awareness program. So making sure that you know when your employees join the organisation, when you're, they're onboarded, that you've got an awareness program. It makes them aware of what the cybersecurity policies and requirements are within this organisation, what the data privacy uh, requirements and standards are, you know, what uh, what this particular organisation uh, considers to be um, you know non-public information. Um, and and how it processes it, and how it um, what's acceptable uh, within the organisation for how that data is um, used and processed. Yeah. Um, so making people aware from the outset, and then maintaining that going through, updating their awareness as that's appropriate, um, but also giving training courses as people change roles um, and you know move within the organisation, so that when someone joins an organisation um, in a quite junior position, that they actually rec um, receive the training that they need as they go through. Okay. Um, well, that covers the, sort of the bottom-up sort of employee training approach. But in terms of what about the the CISO uh, herself or himself in the organisation? Hmm. I mean, uh, presumably they need a fair bit of training and awareness as well. I mean. Whether that's internally or if you're, say, for example, God forbid, a third party provider that helps to manage. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It's one of those things that because information security and cyber security is constantly changing, um, you know, CISOs need to be, um, uh, you know, trained and made aware of uh, of new threats and risk factors and risk vectors and the way that. Um, organizations are being attacked. I mean, we've spoken uh, a number of times before about the invention of malware, yeah, um, yeah. you know, and the and ransomware specifically, um, and how you know 
three years ago. Um, that didn't really exist, um, you know. But once it appeared on the scene, um, lots and lots of copycat, um, yeah, lots and lots of copycats were were uh, were created. Would you recommend sort of a formal sort of training and sort of self education approach? To this in terms of actually going doing a course or an online course or I, I, I don't know, hmm. or is this? It occurs to me this this the fret see or no the fret vector I think as you describe I like that I, 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 I like that. <laughs> talk about this before but there's this it seems to be evolving so rapidly and mutating yes by the time you've gone to a training course you're probably out of date on you so do you need to actually personally enrich your sort of education by do, self self education yeah absolutely there's a there is a requirement for um, you know that people are going to have on their CISOs to be um, aware of the environment that they're working in and the specific um, you know, threat vectors and risk vectors and bad actors that are targeting their specific organization. But they're going to need to, you know, all CISOs really need to be um, um, on a, con a continuous development program of some, yeah. uh, of some kind. Now that can be um, self-taught and they can be self-motivated in that way. Um, for organizations um, that can um, you know, afford to send their um, uh, their employees, um, uh, you know, to external courses on that. Um, but you know, as a third party provider, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you know, providing um, CISOs, you know, we're very aware of that, and you know, very much maintain uh, that. But very, ma very much um, look to hire the right people, the people who are going to be motivated uh, to maintain the right level of knowledge and actually. Um, attend events and and speak at events and all those kind of things too. In terms of, in terms of like you know, your portability of your employment skills, so I guess we've talked about the unofficial way of doing this, but I guess you know, if you're looking to move to another organisation, what is the uh, is the official sort of qualification that you might need? Um, is there something out there written if you're revising CISO that they should get the the must have certification? What would that be? There are a couple of um, certifications. They're not necessarily um, CISO um, specific, though. They're very much aimed um, um, at the um, information security uh, community um, right. as a whole, and in some instances, very much aimed at the uh, more um, technical security officers rather than the uh, the chief information um, security officers. Um, that said, though, there are um, there are um, you know university um, level. Right, uh, information right, okay. security. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and similarly for um, an organisation like Fistep, I mean, you know, what's, mm. you've got all sorts of certifications. I know, um, in fact, you've just obtained a few recently. What were they? Or how did they assist you? And how did they assist you? To yeah, yeah. Well, not, uh, well, I'm very impressed, uh, Chris, uh, that you've been uh, reading. <laughs> I do pay attention. Our, our you know, I'll occasionally look at the well, website. That's, I mean. uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's yet to be proven, but we'll, uh, we'll count this one as a, as a plus for you. But um, yeah, we recently. Um, uh, achieved um, Cybersecurity Essentials Plus um, uh, status, which is um, uh, excellent news. Um, it means that um, we've been judged by a, a third party and certificated by a third party. Let's come in and look at our, looked at our internal um, security processes and procedures and um, um, and passed us on uh, all levels to the degree that we've got Cyber Essentials Plus, which is the um, the um, the highest level of um, cyber okay. essentials, um, but we're also um, ISO twenty seven thousand one certified, and ISO which is the information security yeah. standard, yeah. and ISO uh, twenty two three hundred one, which is the um, um, uh, resiliency, the uh, business continuity planning uh, standard yeah. as well. Uh, okay. So we're certified externally certified on all three of those.
Okay, excellent. Well, I'd like to touch on something which, uh, which had always baffled me, but uh, being someone who didn't really pay much life. attention at it's school, like to my, I didn't really do, go in for coding or for uh, my, my IT um, sort of education was pretty poor. But encryption has always fascinated me, uh, yeah. and I, I gather that you know the NYDFS requires um, uh, thorough encryption of public information. So, so what what is you know, what's involved in that? Yeah, it's going to be um, uh, that's going to be a change for some organisations. I mean, we mentioned earlier on the encryption of things like passwords and user IDs and that kind of information, um, but it's going to be any non-public information. Mm. Now, interestingly, NYDFS doesn't isn't prescriptive prescriptive enough to say that it has to be encrypted just at rest or whilst in transit. So at rest is where it's actually sitting in a database or something like that. Um, so the working assumption um, that anyone who's regulated by this should make, I believe, is that it's encrypted uh, throughout the channel. So that means if people are entering information on a website, then that, inf that website should be um, encrypted website. So it should be an HTTPS uh, website. You should see the little padlock appropriately in your browser. Yeah. Um, once information is transmitted to the web server, it should remain encrypted throughout its journey and its life cycle until the point it's stored on a database, and that database should be encrypted as well. And it's not just encrypted. Um, you know, we've discussed before. You know, different types of encryption. Well, I was going to mention actually. I mean, go, carry on, but something I want to touch on a bit later on. But well, it needs to be adequately uh, encrypted. It can't just be. You know, some forms of uh, encryption these days are really just um, no better than obf obfuscation. Um, yeah. You know. Um, yeah, there's several um, very, very old um, encryption methods, if you like, which are really more ciphers. Um, but um, one of the highest, as I understand it, and they're, they're obviously coming at more from a layman's point of view, but the highest level of encryption, as I understand it at the moment, would be something like blockchain technology. Is that some, you know, with the, you know, the, the, well, that, the, the, the technology that underpins that? Um, can't, hasn't currently hasn't been broken as far as I know. Is that is that something worth exploring, or is that is that still a bit of a shimmer or too far down the line? No, well, actually, the 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 technology that's used in blockchain um, for the encryption as it isn't unique to blockchain. Um, you know the. Um, that technology has been um, employed in blockchain because it needs to be um, a high level of encryption. But there will be where it's uh, appropriate to have um, such high levels of encryption. There's no reason why um, you couldn't actually, um, you know, in encrypt a database to that level. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, in incident response plans. Yes. What happens when things go wrong? Okay. Well, you need an incident response plan. It's the first thing. Um, you don't want to be generating that as um, at the point in time when the you know uh, when the incident has occurred, you really don't want that. Um, so setting up a, an incident response plan, knowing what you've got to do, when you've got to do it, and who you've got to notify through the process. What are the goals of an incident response plan? Really, those things yeah, uh, right. that I just said: um, having a good communication plan, knowing who you're going to um, um, who you're going to notify, when you're going to notify, and um, with the ultimate uh, aim to get the organisation. Uh, back to um, back up and operating as quickly as, as possible if it's not been operating, and to be back to business as usual um, as quickly as possible. But under the um, NYDFS, um, interestingly enough, there's an actual time requirement for notification as well. Mm. Um, now there are um, in uh, North America alone, or within the US uh, specifically, there are state by state notification requirements which. Um, uh, can become quite complex. Um, you know what you have to notify, when you have to notify. Um, you know, is it you know a, a ten record breach or is it ten million record breach? Those kind of things, and they vary from state to state. 
Um, NYDFSO is very specific um, in as much as you have to notify within 72 hours. Right. Now, interestingly enough, that matches yeah, the um, EU GDPR uh, requirement as well, um, which also says um, 72 hours. It's a reasonable period of time uh, for an organisation to have identified, um, to have been notified the breach, uh, to start to mitigate it, to understand how the breach occurred and, and mm. some of the factors. Um, under NYDFS, you're obviously notifying the site superintendent. Um, it's likely to be the CISO um, okay. who's, um, who's, uh, who's doing that work as part of their, their duties. Um, um, it would be a busy time, obviously, for a, a CISO dealing with a, an incident response and understanding what's actually occurred, um, how they're mitigating, how they're actually getting the organisation back up and running. Okay. Well, we've mentioned uh, New York, so NYDFS, but obviously there are, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to say how many states there are in the other states are on the US because I've completely forgotten. But fifty-two, fifty-two, But the other states in in, in the in the US, um, do they do you need to achieve sort of this type of equivalency? I mean, if you want to trade there, I mean, presumably it's a similar kind of tell. Well, uh, presently, New York is the only one who's come out um, and named such. Um, um, has got such a requirement at this point in time. However, I expect that some of the other states will um, take um, NYDFS's lead right, okay. and, um, and and implement something similar. Um, whether um, you know whether it's a like for like, um, you know, and they actually say, "Oh, it's this." I suspect there'll be some states who will regard you know uh, New York has gone in, uh, having gone too far. Um, others right. who will think perhaps they haven't gone far enough. You know, at this point in time, though, I think um, uh, the NYDFS um, you know, requirements are uh, appropriate. Um, you know, appropriate to what we're seeing, and it's a uh, a really good step up from where uh, you know, where we've been in the past. Okay. Well, Darren, I think that pretty much covers off most of the things that you know, I wanted to, to ask you about the uh, New York State Department of Financial Services proposal. As, as we said, that uh, uh, that proposal was submitted uh, late last year on the twenty eighth of December. Um, and I think we've covered you know, a lot of the subjects we wanted to today. Um, but if you want to find out any more uh, about this and other thought leadership, um, or if you want to know, uh, learn, learn more about uh, Fifth Step's current thinking, uh, then please visit uh, uh, fifthstep.com. Uh, obviously, don't forget uh, to like Fifth Step on your social media and, uh, and podcast apps, uh, all those uh, applications of choice. And just like to conclude by saying, you know, thanks a lot, Darren. Um, that was a very insightful, thoughtful stuff. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris.